Vikings of the Pandemic, Episode 5, Orkney Island, 1381. The new Earl is going to build a castle in Orkney, announced John Wark, the fortress keeper. He sat with his family gathered around the dinner table at his home on Chapinsay Island. This is great news for our northern isles. We have not seen such construction since the reign of King Hakon IV. At last, our defenses will be refurbished. Henry Sinclair, Lord of Roslyn, was proclaimed Earl of Orkney and Lord of Shetland by King Hakon VI of Norway, reviving one of the most powerful earldoms and titles in Norway. Shortly after this proclamation, King Hakon VI passed away, leaving his throne in the care of his widow, Queen Margaret. John Wark inherited the title of fortress keeper from his father, who had inherited it from his father before him, going back many generations. But the last fortress keeper to be involved actively in the construction of fortifications passed away at the beginning of the 1300s. John remained responsible for maintaining the signal system that warned islanders of storms or the occasional unwelcome visitor. Other things had changed since the beginning of the century. The Bishop of Orkney, who historically had been actively involved in the governance of Orkney and Shetland, no longer took a residence in Kirkwall, as previous bishops had done, but governed the sea from Bergen. The Bishop's Palace, the one fortified stru structure in Kirkwall, constructed at the same time as the St. Mag Magnus Cathedral had fallen into disrepair. Now Earl Henry was proposing that a castle be built in Orkney, the site yet undecided. John and his younger brother Robert were fishermen and traders. They became prosperous, selling herring that was abundant off the Orkney and Shetland coast. The herring they caught was dried and salted on their shores and then shipped to Scandinavia by the family trading ships. The work connection with fishermen in Iceland and the Hebrides enabled them to buy dried cod or stockfish. During Europe's recurring famines and plague, these preserved fish supplies were in great demand. John's wife, Miriam, was cautiously excited by this news. What do you suppose your role will be in this as fortress keeper? She asked. John replied, that remains to be seen. Earl Henry obviously has an interest in fortifying his holdings. I want to go through some of the old charts and records and see if I can offer some local advice to the Earl about where to place the castle and what local materials can be used. His enthusiasm was catching. As head of the work clan, he made important decisions for the family that were usually sound. His brother Robert agreed to help him in this latest endeavor, but he had reservations. One question I have, asked Robert, is why is he building this castle? What is his intention? It has been said that King Hakon stipulated that Henry must not fortify Orkney as a condition of accepting the earldom. The earl is only able to govern and take income from Orkney at the king's will. I'm wondering if he will be able to build the castle he desires. 
My guess is that now that King Hakon has passed away, Earl Henry is taking advantage of the vacuum that has been created, John said. The king's widow, Queen Margaret, is to act as regent for their son Olaf during his minority. She wants Olaf proclaimed king of Norway and Sweden and has claimed the Danish throne for him as well. Olaf is the grandson of the now deceased King Valdemar of Denmark, Margaret's father. I believe her ambition is to be regent for all of Scandinavia, united the three Scandinavian countries through one crown. Her cousin Alexander agreed. He lived on his farm in Scapa, speaking. He had just come back from Norway. Maybe Earl Henry thinks he can talk Queen Margaret into agreeing to more fortifications to guard her interests in the North Sea. I say good for him. Queen Margaret needs to protect Scandinavia from the German states who are becoming stronger every year. Alexander sailed all over the North Sea and the Baltic with his comrades who were privateers and smugglers. They hid in the fjords and coves of Norway and Sweden to avoid arrest and confiscation of their goods, not to mention taxes. The family did not ask too many questions about Alexander's role in these illegal activities. He was very useful to John and Robert in their fishing trade, as he was able to procure items such as salt, a precious commodity for their business. A few days after their family gathering, John rode his skiff to Kirkwall and walked to the St. Magnus Cathedral to visit his brother William, who was a cleric there. William, who had attended the family meeting, suggested that they go to the church archives to find information about former Kirkwall fortifications. John found his brother in a damp cellar storeroom, rummaging through old documents and charts. These archives are not as well organized as I would like, said William. If we cannot find the information you need here, I could send a message to Scaholt, Iceland. Their scriptorium has the most comprehensive historical collection from those years. At this point, their sister Margaret entered the room. She lived in the nun's house nearby with the other nuns who provided health care for the residents of Orkney. She was known for her knowledge of medicinal plants. The gift of healing had been passed down through the work women over many generations, and Margaret and her sister Anne, who now lived in the Hebrides, both had this gift. I heard that you were in the cathedral, John, she said. I'm sorry I could not come out to the farm last night to visit with the family. We have been busy in the hospice. We are keeping some of the fishermen and sailors who came back recently from Norway isolated from the rest of the patients in the infirmary, as we are fearful of another outbreak of the plague. Oh, that's terrible news, sister, John said that the plague might be upon us once again? He wondered at Margaret's calmness in the face of such a scorch. The worst outbreaks of the Black Death occurred over a decade ago. Many of the island residents were spared thanks to the vigilance and foresight of the hospice nuns and physicians. Sailors coming into port from the mainland were regularly checked for signs of the illness before they disembarked. 
Don't worry about me, John, said Margaret. I have been exposed so often, I'm not fearful of succumbing now. What are you two doing down here in the cellar? Boy, we really need a better library, William, don't you think? I could use some space for my books as well. I've tried to keep my records and remedies and my books in order at the infirmary, but there isn't very much room. William looked at his well-organized older sister. You were right, of course, Margaret. There is a lot of valuable information here we could put to good use. We are trying to find information about the history of fortifications in Orkney. The new Earl of Orkney wants to build a castle here, and John and I are searching for documentation about Orkney's previous defenses. I see, said Margaret. Well, that is very interesting. Orkney has not had much of a profile in Norway, in Norway of late, except as a halfway point to Iceland and Greenland. The king held back from proclaiming a new earl so he could keep the income and authority of that position for himself. The investiture of Earl Henry will change that. Perhaps we can get him to build a hospital for us as part of his castle. We could sure use it. Please stop by the infirmary before you two leave. Perhaps the three of us can have supper together. With that and a swish of her black habit, she disappeared down the dark corridor. Turning to one of the shelves, William brought down a dusty roll scroll, placing it on the table. Both William and John, who was looking over his shoulder, noted the name of the author, Paul Olufsen, cleric of St. Magnus Cathedral, dated 1165. It was entitled, Concerning the Earl of Orkney's Pilgrimage to the Holy Land, 1150 to 1153. They sat down at the table in the flickering light and unrolled this it. But before they could read it, they found another scroll rolled up inside of it entitled Work Family History, written between 1165 and 2010. The author was once again Paul Olufsen, who described himself as a member of the Work clan. Never having seen this family history before, they opened it. The history began with an explanation of the role of Porcus keeper in Orkney, a position that had been in existence since the first earls of Orkney. The fortress keeper was a position traditionally held by the war clan. The first substantial island fortifications were built in the time of Earl Sigurd around 1000 AD. William had, was looking at drawings of the fortifications built along Kirkwall Bay at that time. Reading further, the history updated the development and growth of Kirkwall and its fortifications in 1212-10, when the history ended, and included the buildings of St. Magnus Cathedral and the Bishop's Palace. Boy, this is incredible information, John explained, looking at the drawings. William, we need to take this family history home with us and study it further. This is what we were looking for. He began imagining how the new Earl would react when he was given this old information. William was glancing through the rest of the scroll. 
Look at this, John. Here is an account of the voyage of Roggenwald the Explorer to Finland in 1005. This is where the Earl got the wood to be used in the first fortifications. Roggenwald was a member of the Wart clan. We have heard family stories about Roggenwald the Explorer. He really existed, and he visited Finland. The author, Paul, writes of voyages made by other members of the clan to the west in the 1200s. William returned the scroll describing the Earl of Orkney's crusade to the Holy Land to the shelf. He would come back to read that one another day. They walked to the infirmary looking for Margaret. The three of them sat at a long table in the refectory poring over the family history written over 200 years ago. Margaret knew about Paul Olison, who became head cleric under Bishop Bjarni Kolbeinson. She told them that Paul also served in his younger days under Bishop William the Old. When they told her that Paul had written an account of the Earl of Orkney's crusade to the Holy Land, she said, you must read that account, William. It could be that Paul went with Bishop William to the Holy Land. Earl Henry and his steward were looking for a site for the castle, and to this end, both of them landed the, their skiff on Chapinsay Island. <clears throat> Henry was a tall, imposing man, wearing high leather boots and a coat that came to his mid-thigh made of the finest wool. This was chalked off by a leather hat and gloves, trimmed in fur. It was chilly but sunny on this autumn day in Orkney. Kirkwall Bay displayed white caps, while in the strait beyond, churning waves crashed upon the rocky cliffs. John Wark was waiting for the Earl, having seen his skip depart from mainland. He and his eldest son, John, now 16, pulled the skip ashore. Greetings, Earl Henry, said John. We are pleased to see you on Chabonsay. Please come to my home for some refreshment. Perhaps later, thank you, John Wark, the Earl replied, after we've had a chance to look around the island. Earl Henry was making a tour of all the islands in his quest to find the best site. It was said he was considering Bursay as well as Westray, since these locations directly faced Norway. The year was 1381, and he had been Earl of Orkney for one year. Henry was an active member of Queen Margaret's court and supported the Calmount Kalmar Union, a union that brought the three Scandinavian countries under one crown. He recently purchased a fine sailing ship in Sweden, using it to sail between Orkney, Denmark, to the Queen's Court, and his properties on the eastern shores of Scotland. He was an accomplished sailor and engaged experienced sea captains for his small fleet of ships. His wish was to see Norway's sea power restored in the northern Atlantic. John was involved in the building of a temporary residence for the Earl in Kirkwall, one that he could use until the castle was completed. He had not had the opportunity to speak to the Earl about his family history or his ideas about the site of the castle. He was thrilled when the Earl's steward, a Scotsman from Earl Roslin's state named Duncan, asked for a tour of Chapinsay. 
Chapinsay, being a flat island with plentiful land for growing grain and grazing cattle, was best seen by horseback, and the four men mounted and started their circuit on the side of the island facing Kirkwall. Kirkwall, with its boats and market, was bustling with fishermen and farmers coming to the town to trade. Two large wharfs stood on the northern edge of the bay where merchants had their warehouses and trading centers. A large trading ship displaying the Icelandic banner was moored off one of the wharfs. The western side of Shapensay was less sheltered and contained numerous pools along the shore abounding with sea seabirds and fish. The livestock, consisting of cows, sheep, and goats, were plentiful here, grazing right down to the sea's edge. They rode up a hill dominating the center of the island and dismounted. This was the spot that Earl Henry and his steward Duncan were most interested in because of its vantage point. The sprawling Wark farmhouse, located near the southern shore, was on display here, another possible location as it was less exposed to the fierce winds and seas that the Orkneys were so famous for. Several homes had been built in a radius around the farmstead, occupied by family relations. Fishing boats, drying racks, and storage set sheds dotted the wide beach below the farm. You have an excellent location for your farm, fortress keeper, the Earl said. I know your family has been here for many generations. You are a freeholder, are you not? John nodded, <clears throat> guessing the girl, girl's thought processes. Henry was about to say more, but John interjected. Why don't you come down to my home for something warm to drink? The chilly wind was piercing their thick wool clothing. I want to show you some documents that my brother William, a cleric at St. Magnus, and I recently discovered in the cathedral archives that will give you some history of Orkney's defenses. That would be most interesting and most welcome, Henry said. He was interested in learning more about the workings of St. Magnus Cathedral and the Bishopric of Orkney. The bishopric was proprietor of much of the lands in Orkney, including Chapinsay, generating a substantial income for the diocese. The transfer of holdings from the earldom to the bishopric occurred when there was no active earl residing on the island. Earl Henry wished, through either the Scottish or Norwegian archbishop, to reverse his policy as he needed the income to fulfill his ambitious plan to build a northern power base. He could not touch the freeholders of Orkney like the Warks, whose land rights went back to the original settlement era, but there was a lot of church land leased out to farmers that could be captured for the Earl's purse. Henry received some positive communication from the Archbishop of Aberdeen about appointing his cousin Robert Sinclair as bishop the problem was that the Archbishop of Aberdeen was aligned to the Avignon Pope, while the Norwegian Archbishop of Trondheim was aligned to the Pope in Rome. The Earl needed to determine the best offer between two different elected popes. Henry's allegiance was also divided between two sovereigns, the Queen Regent of Norway, Margaret, and the King of Scotland, but he had discovered that this situation had several benefits. 
If he did not particularly like the commands or advice of one court, he could plead that it was necessary for him to adhere to another, more favorable directive as part of his duty to the other crown. He was not enthusiastic about the new Stuart royal family now in power in Scotland. His Scottish forebearers had loyally served the great Robert the Bruce and his son King David in peace and in war. Lack of direct heirs, though, created an opportunity for the former head steward of the royal household to gain the throne, and King Robert II had taken it. Henry's aspirations were more in line with the Scandinavian Queen Regent Margaret, as he could increase his income and influence through their sea power. Scotland was not as committed to dominating the northern seas as Scandinavia. He preferred the ambition and leadership of Queen Margaret over the weak Stuart monarchs in Scotland who were consumed with consolidating their position and countering the advances of the English monarchs. Miriam welcomed Earl Henry and Stuart Duncan into her home where a fire was burning in the fireplace at both ends of the main hall. The table was spread with plates of bread, cold meat, and cheese, all from the farm. William, in his priest robes, stood by the fire and came forward in greeting as the Earl and Duncan entered the hall. This is my brother William, of which I spoke, John said. We are glad to welcome you to our home. Everyone sat down to eat. Miriam and a serving woman brought out ale and hot cider. While they were eating, the Earl said, Let us see what you have found in the archives, Fortress Keeper. I'm very curious about the history of Orkney. William and John unfurled the document that William brought with him, starting with the description of the earliest fortifications on the mainland and where they were located. They compared these older drawings to the configuration of the present town of Kirkwell. Since the time of the drawings, the growing town had proclaimed parts of the bay that were low-lying. The castle, if built in the middle of the town, will be well protected by the deep bay. Another advantage is that, since the bishop's palace is no longer in use, you could use stones from that structure to build the castle. If the castle is located in Kirkwall, you'll be able to take income off the trading fish thistles that come into Kirkwall and the port of Scalba. It is possible to build a toll road to the east of Kirkwall, connecting these two harbors. Henry and Duncan looked at the drawings, considering the merits of this proposal. John continued, The cliffs and hills surrounding Kirkwell provide increased security for the castle. As you probably know, our island has maintained a signaling system on these cliffs for many centuries, warning residents of possible attacks or dangerous weather. Attacks from enemies were less frequent now, but piracy was on the rise and storms coming across the northern Atlantic threatened fishing boats and equipment, and they were increasing in severity. Because of these changes in the weather, including a drop in temperature during the summer months, it had been necessary for the Orkney farmers to adjust to a shorter growing season. You and your family maintain that signaling system, don't you, I believe? Duncan inquired. Yes, said John. From Chapinsay, we can easily get to the highest cliffs, just west of, of Kirkwall. Signals from that station can be relayed to the islanders who live in the outer islands. 
Warning signals can also be sent in the reverse direction. The bad weather and pirates seem to come from all directions these days. This is certainly something to consider. Henry said, I like the idea of using building materials from the palace. Henry turned to his steward with a wry expression. I wonder if we will see a Bishop of Orkney residing here again. Earl Henry hoped not to see the new bishop, whoever it might be, in such close quarters. Certainly his cousin Robert St. Clair, a Scotsman, would comply with his wishes if he were given the title. This visit has been most helpful. He and Duncan prepared to depart. I know you're interested in the sea voyages Norwegians took during the time when the Norwegian Empire was at its height. The document William and I found in the cathedral archives describes the fortifications of the town. It's and is it is actually in a history of our family that we were unaware of until a few days ago. It tells about some very early excursions to the new lands of the West. William pointed to the place in the document containing these accounts. Henry uh, studied the, the document. This document describes how Roggenwald, the explorer, an ancestor of ours who lived almost 400 years ago, sailed to the western lands around the time of Leif Erikson, the Greenlanders. You have heard the tales of Leif the Lucky and his discovery of the new land west of Greenland called Finland. William and John looked inquisitively at the new earl. The earl replied, I have heard of the sagas of the Greenlanders. We hardly hear of Greenland these days, though I know it is part of the Norwegian Empire. Earl Henry was viv visibly impressed. I am an admirer of the sagas being written by the As Icelandic scholars. Thank goodness they are preserving Norway's glorious past. He further scanned the roll. Do you think this account of a voyage to Vinland is evidence that indeed Vinland does exist? Henry looked at John and William. He continued reading and then mused. It says here that Roggenball, your ancestor, besides bringing back wood for the island's fortifications, brought back magic medicinal plants. It describes these plants in detail. He looked up, a question in his eyes. This is true. Does your family still have such plants? John looked towards Miriam, his wife. The women in our family have been known for generations as healers. William and I have a sister in the nunnery in Kirkwall and another sister in the Hebrides who have these gifts. They communicate regularly. The family possessed an amulet containing remnants of these plants from Vinland, but it is not in our keeping now, unfortunately, and we're not sure, sure or certain what happened to it. Well, that is fascinating, I am sure, said Henry. I would like to take this history with me and study it further. I will return it to you, William, for storage in the cathedral. I did not realize that someone from these islands made the voyage to the lands described in the sagas. He turned to Duncan. That is a venture that I myself would like to undertake someday. Thanking Miriam and taking their leave, the two men returned to their skiff and to Kirkwall. 
It was not long before the whole Wart clan was thrown into a flurry of activity working on the projects that Earl Henry had set for them. After taking stock of the islands, he decided that the castle should be located in the main court of Kirkwall. John and his oldest son became involved in the construction of the castle. Cousin Alexander was able to obtain wooden beams from Norway to support the native sandstone construction, as well as other building equipment, tools, and materials. Henry knew that besides fish, cured leather was in high demand in Europe, and he established a current operation in Scapa, where hides from all over the Northern Islands were shipped before being sent to Scotland and Europe. Orkney's trade relationship with cotton and France started to grow through Earl Henry's connections to both countries. Brother Robert's fishing fleet grew as exports of herring and cod increased. Henry discovered, through talking to Icelandic trainers, traders stopping in Kirkwall, that grain was in very short supply in Iceland due to the shorter growing season, and he encouraged farmers at Orkney to direct a significant portion of their, of their grain stores westward to Iceland. Soon trading vessels carrying grain to Iceland were returning to Orkney loaded with Icelandic dried cod. Margaret made her annual journey to the Hebrides to visit her sister Anne and told her the news of the Earl's initiatives in Orkney. Anne married into the Macdonnell family, a family closely related to John Macdonald, Lord of the Isles. The Lord and his council were using their sea and military power to maintain independence from the Scottish monarch Robert II, the Stuart King. The Macdonnells maintained close connections with the Gaelic lords of Northern Ireland and had access to trained physicians from Ireland who served the houses of MacDonald and Macdonnell, and Anne and Margaret consulted with them during Margaret's visit. These physicians' knowledge of medical practice was far more advanced than that of any physician practicing in Orkney or Scotland, or even Europe for that matter. The matter of the ancient amulet containing the medicinal plants that our ancestor brought back from Vinland was brought up when John and William met with the Earl. The Earl was quite curious about it. The family history that John and William found in the cathedral archives was written by a relative of ours, Paul Olofsson, and in that history he describes these plants. The Earl expressed a desire to sail to Vinland. I wonder if he might do that. Margaret was wistful. She would love to sail to Vinland herself. I wish we at least knew what happened to that amulet, said Anne. It would give us increased confidence in our healing powers. However, physician McBeath has given us some good strategies for dealing with the plague. His emphasis on isolating the afflicted, as you are now doing, Kirkwall, has been a lifesaver, and he has introduced us to the plants that reduce the fever and swelling. We are fortunate that these Northern Isles and Northern Ireland have not been hit as hard as the South with the plague. The two sisters pulled out their plant collections, spreading them on the table, and began comparing notes about symptoms they had observed and treatment effectiveness of their various medicines.
Spring 1393. The spring came early and proved to be the warmest in the past decade. Earl Henry's pre preparations for the voyage to Vinland accelerated. His fleet of six ships would be ready to leave Orkney by early June. Earl Henry had not forgotten his desire to travel to the western lands, especially after his voyage to Greenland in 1388 on behalf of Queen Margaret. William, now the head cleric at St. Magnus Cathedral, had accompanied the Earl on that voyage to Greenland, along with Alexander and Robert, who acted as helmsmen. The Earl's party stopped in Iceland on the way to Greenland, where William was able to make a visit to Scaffold Scriptorium. There, William discovered a Viking map of Vinland that he copied and shared with the Earl. The scout clerics told William that Portuguese and Spanish sea captains had come to the scriptorium to look at that very map, wanting to know more about the western lands discovered by the Greenlanders. In 1388, Queen Margaret and the Bishop of Greenland, whose residence was in Bergen, commissioned the Earl to travel to Greenland to discover the state of affairs in the Diocese of Garter. The bishop had received very little news and no income from this diocese in over ten years. The earl was asked to complete an inventory of anything of value at the Garter Cathedral and, if possible, retrieve some relics from the Holy Land that were given to the Bishop of Garter in the early 1200s at the time of the cathedral's dedication. In return for this service, Earl Henry was allowed to complete the construction of the Kirkwall Castle and to be a strong Norwegian presence in the North Sea. Earl Henry and William found the relics from Garda Cathedral, and the Earl returned them to the Bishop of Greenland. He reported that many settlements in Greenland were abandoned, that the cathedral was in poor repair, and that there was no income. What he did not share with the bishop was that he kept a small leather pouch of soil that was in the chest containing the holy relics. He intended to use this soil to christen the western lands and claim them for Norway. Margaret convinced her cousin Alexander to let her go on the expedition to Vinland. Having a healer on board was a good idea, she said, and none of his other crew had the knowledge that she possessed about the medicines that might be procured from native plants they found there. Father Magnus, a cleric from St. Magnus Cathedral, was accompanying the fleet to take care of the crew's spiritual needs. The fleet sailed un under clear blue skies, held by easterly winds, and arrived in Iceland without incident. They picked up supplies and decided to bypass Greenland. They were using the Viking map found in Skelholt, following the current north around Greenland, then sailing westward. Within a week, they came upon the barren shores of Helleland. Markland is a day south of here, said Snorri Adamson, an Icelander. Snorri spent time in Greenland and sailed to Markland with Greenlanders for lumber. He was optimistic about this voyage because the weather was inordinately, inordinately mild. Snorri and the Earl stood on the bow of his ship, the Arcadian, searching for a break in the trees as they planned to camp for a couple of nights in Markland. 
Snorri wondered if they would see evidence of the Greenlanders who set sail from Arkland a few years back to settle there. Towards twilight, the Orcadian pointed its bow towards a wide inlet that could accommodate the sh six ships. The Earl wanted to explore Markland further, and the men wanted to hunt for fresh meat. They dropped anchor off the North Shore, and the next morning a group of sailors and the Earl rowed ashore in a skiff to a patch of soil that looked like the beginning of a path. Following the path inland to a clearing, they found evidence of some crude structures and campfires that had long been abandoned. The woods were silent except for bird calls and the sound of the sea that they had left behind them. If this was the Greenlanders' camp, they were no longer in residence here. Two days later, the Orcadian continued southwards toward Finland. They came to the mouth of the wide river that Ragnall described in his account and began searching for the camp that Leif Erikson and his brother built 400 years ago. The camp was located on the northeastern tip of the peninsula south of the river. The ships anchored in a shallow bay not far from a broad beach and Earl Henry and his party prepared to row ashore. Others would follow with food and other gear after they had received a signal from the Earl's party. The weather remained clear and cool and most of the winter's snow had melted. While waiting for the Earl's signal, Margaret asked Alexander if they could take a, a skiff and explore the bay. The main living things they encountered on this exploration were seals and seabirds. At twilight, Earl Henry returned to the ship's excitement written all over his face. He left half of his party up on the meadow where, he said, they had discovered mounds now covered by grass and bush set in a circular, obviously mound-made pattern. The meadow was bowl-shaped and, protect, and protected from the wind. It clearly offered the best place to set up a camp. While his steward organized the unloading of the necessary goods and equipment, Earl Henry went to his berth on the Arcadian to collect his belongings. The Earl brought along extra blankets, utensils, and jewelry to trade with the natives they encountered. Margaret and Alexander returned to the fleet to find a beehive of activity of sailors unloading food, equipment, and other supplies onto the skiffs and stacked up on the shore. A line of sailors carried these goods to the top of the plateau. I guess we're staying here, said Margaret. She had in her hand a couple of small plants with del delicate purple and yellow flowers that she had picked up along the shoreline. We need to tell them about the native people we saw on the cliff overlooking the ships. Earl Henry is to be pre prepared to speak to them. The natives were not in the mood to talk or to trade. The following day, they presented themselves on the edge of the meadow where the Earl's party was camped, spears and clubs in hand. As the Earl's steward approached them, they shook their weapons and shouted, then disappeared into the woods. Guards were set up around the camp that night, and half the party kept watch around the campfire. Two nights later, the natives attacked. Their spears and clubs were no match for the knives, hatchets, arrows, and shields that the Norsemen brandished, and they soon withdrew. 
but they returned every night to harass them and successfully kidnapped one sailor who had gone to the woods to relieve himself. Did you see that two of the natives had blue eyes? Margaret asked. She and Magnus kept close to the campfire during the attack and were able to see the native faces in the firelight. They kept a low profile as they were not sure what the natives would make of their black habits. Maybe they took the Greenlanders who settled here years ago as hostages. Magnus replied, maybe that is what happened to the Markland sellers. The feeling among the party was that the hostile Finland natives, who had obviously encountered Norsemen before, were now not disposed to them in a friendly way. I think we should move on, said the Earl. This is a vast land, and I would like to explore more of it. We have found the Viking settlement. This has been a great achievement, one that we can speak of for many years when we return home, but we do not want to put ourselves in danger. According to the sagas and the Viking maps, other parts of this land are just as fruitful. I say we load up first thing in the morning and sail around the headland to explore the other side of this peninsula. The six ships were reloaded and the fleet slowly made their way north, then west. The gulf of a huge river opened up before them, dotted with islands and teeming with fish, porpoises, and breaching whales. They sailed west towards the land they could see in the distance. They soon found a wide sandy beach at the mouth of a river where they were able to land their ships and set up a base camp. Though they saw some evidence of native inhabitants, they did not encounter them and soon felt that the danger of attack was over. They remained in the camp for a month. The weather was warm and fine, the game and fish plentiful. Earl Henry and some of his men went on several expeditions, returning after a few days to report on islands, one of them very large and lush trees and plants bordering the calm gulf waters. Alexander began to wonder when the party might leave, as the glorious weather could change at any time and fall was approaching. The Earl decided on a place where his christening ceremony would take place. There was a point not far from the camp that went far out into the bay and was of great beauty. He announced that the entire party would sail to this point and prepared Magnus for the ceremony that was to be performed. Out of his sea chest he took the precious pouch with the sacred soil that he removed from the holy relics at Garter Cathedral and slipped it into the pocket of his greatcoat. Standing on the rocky cliff high above the water, he sprinkled the soil, some over the water, some over the land, as Magnus said a prayer and declared the new land for Christ the King and for Norway and Queen Margaret. Almost as a sign, as soon as the ceremony was over and the party was returning to the camp, big dark clouds rolled in from the northeast and the temperature dropped like a stone. The once passive sea churned and crashed along the sandy shore, forcing them to move the camp upland into the forest where they would be more protected. They decided to unload all the ships and haul them ashore so that they would not be damaged. 
The storm continued for two weeks. The driving rain turned to sleet and then snow. After the storm was over, a second one rolled in, this one from the northwest. They could not return home. They would have to remain until spring. It could have been worse. There was food and water available here. The company was well equipped with coats and furs and blankets, and they could capture more fur from the wildlife surrounding them. But they had not prepared to spend a whole year away, and soon most of the staples, such as flour and salt, had run out. There was no early warm spring as in the previous year. Clearly, a new weather pattern had beset them. It was de decided that in the summer, when the weather was the most tolerable, three of the ships would set sail for home and three would remain in the new land. In this way, the whole party would not be well wiped out. Earl Henry was to return with the first ships, while his steward, Alexander, and Margaret would remain with the rest of the crew for another summer. Margaret asked for this, for she wanted to do more exploring of the local flora. Margaret made observations about the native plants, both during the warm weather, where there was abundance of exotic species, plants that she had never seen before, and in the cold weather that followed, when the plants were buried by snow, she dissected them, preserving the flowers and the leaves as best she could until her return home. And return home they did, much to the relief of the world and the work family. The crossing was treacherous. Like Rogenval, they set their course the southern Tampa of Benland, and the currents and prevailing winds took them to the port of Dublin, where they remained for a month to repair their ships before returning to Orkney. While she was in Dublin, Margaret discovered a new invention, paper, that one could write on. A French trader was selling it, saying that it came from China. He showed her how paper could be bound together into a book. Margaret would now be able to draw and write about the plants she collected in Finland. In the following year, when the Earl sailed to Norway, he spoke of his voyage to the western lands to greet Margaret and the Bishop of Orkney. Henry told the Queen that he declared these lands for Norway. The Bishop of Orkney praised him for his bravery, but Queen Margaret, absorbed in Domestic issues asked the Earl to remain close to Orkney and keep watch over the North Sea. Her conflicts with the pirates were escalating, and her priority was to strengthen her naval power so that she could combat pirates as well as compete with the Hanseatic League. The Earl turned his attention away from the West. He became increasingly involved with the court of King Robert II of Scotland, who gave him approval to build his Roslyn fortification. The Earl was made Lord of the Admiralty of Scotland, responsible for repelling English ships invading Scotland's waters. In the early 1400s, the great era of Earl Henry of St. Clair and his vision of a northern sea power came to an end. The English finally caught up with him in Orkney, and when they invaded and sacked mainland, Earl Henry was killed as he was defending the island, and half of his fleet was destroyed. From Orkney, his body was carried by ship to Roslyn, where he was buried in the crypt of the castle chapel. 
His son Henry became the new Earl, but spent much of his time at the Scottish court.